Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional and international headlines and speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. Attacks continued in Gaza this week in the midst of refugee camps and hospitals. The conflict, now at its seventh week, has resulted in a devastating death toll, with more than 14,000 lives lost and a staggering 40% of the casualties being children. On this episode of Frankly Speaking, we hear from Claire Dalton, the UAE head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. We ask her about the alarming number of attacks on hospitals and civilian facilities, whether the group continue working in Gaza without access to fuel, internet or anesthesia, and what went on during the Red Cross's recent meeting with Hamas. Claire, thank you for joining us on Frankly Speaking. Now, the recent conflict in Gaza, possibly more than any other in recent history, has been characterised by the deliberate attack on hospitals and collective punishment of civilians using inhumane tactics such as cutting off access to fuel, food, water, internet, even humanitarian assistance too. Now, you have worked for the Red Cross for more than 15 years. Frankly speaking, how would you describe such practices? And have you seen anything worse in recent history? I mean, thank you very much for having me. I think as you highlight, it's a devastating situation. Um, people are facing immeasurable difficulty and civilians in particular are really, really suffering. I mean, since this started, I think the situation has been getting gradually almost worse. The, the, the situation civilians find themselves in is really, really difficult. I mean. It's, you know, people know, they see the news every day, but Gaza is a very highly densely populated city. And so, of course, people don't have many places they can flee or evacuate to. Uh, you know, a densely populated cities, also during fighting, you know, the damage to critical infrastructure is going to be really bad. And then when people move, where do they go? I think all of these things are compounding the difficulty people face anyway in a situation where there's a conflict. You've obviously been at the Red Cross for around 15 years now. Have you seen a worse incident, a worse conflict in history, particularly for civilians in your experience? I mean, my experience, I think all, I mean, war is terrible and the impact on people is devastating, whoever you are and whichever side you're on. I think it's really hard to make these comparisons. I mean, we like to say there's no hierarchy in suffering. If you're a mother whose child has been killed, Wherever that is or whichever situation, that's just terrible. And, you know, our message is always, you know, wars take place, but they should have limits. And, and I, think that's a, uh, I think that's a really valid point because we've seen several incidents on hospitals and medical teams as well. Even recently, uh, the Jordanian field hospital team members uh, underwent attack. They had nothing to do with the war at the time. Does the International Committee of the Red Cross, do they condemn these kinds of attacks? Well, for us, hospitals need to be places that are able to treat the sick, the wounded, elderly, young children. You know, and what we're seeing uh, in Gaza is many of these hospitals are becoming places of devastation, not of sanctuary for people who are injured or sick. Um, you know, hospitals should be protected, civilians, doctors, 
civilians in hospitals, the injured doctors, nurses, mm -hmm. they shouldn't be targeted. They should be able to carry out their jobs to help the critically wounded and sick. What we're seeing too is when hospitals are evacuated that it's very difficult for patients, as you can imagine, yeah. to leave, to find safety elsewhere. I think we could all put our shoes, I mean ourselves in the shoes of somebody who needs urgent medical care for them or their family and not being able to access that, it's you know, really, really terrible and an awful consequence of, of this fighting. And you know, we would always urge that all parties to conflict do their best to not damage critical infrastructure. And yet that simply hasn't been happening. I know that a Red Cross uh, medical team, they actually came under fire from the IDF. That was on November 7. What can you tell us about that incident? I know at the time they were delivering life-saving medical supplies to several hospitals in Gaza. What can you tell us about that attack and other incidents like it? But I think it's the same. I mean, I don't know who, you know, in that sense, who we came under fire from. And in the end, perhaps, you know, that's not the important fact it's that medical workers trying to carry out life-saving work are risking their lives and the patients lives in trying to do their jobs and that shouldn't be the case and if we're not able to deliver life-saving assistance people will die unnecessarily so our message is always that doctors humanitarian workers medical personnel should be protected mm -hmm. when carrying out their jobs. Well, we, we were told that it was the IDF who had specifically fired on the Red Cross there on November 7. But I mean, the, the Red Cross, they've been operating in Gaza for more than 56 years. I know you have around 100 staff there at the moment. We've also seen countless lives lost from humanitarian aid agencies. The UN has said it's been the deadliest in history. I think over 103 aid workers have been killed there. Now, as well as that, and as well as those daily risks your team are facing, they've also uh, had fuel cut off, water, there's no uh, internet access, they don't even have access to anesthesia, not even bandages to be able to wrap uh, burn victims in. With all of that in mind, how is the Red Cross able to sustain its operations there? How long will they be able to continue to work given the escalating violence and clearly the significant toll on staff members there? Well, I think the picture you paint is, you know, extremely accurate. It's so difficult to be able to do our jobs as humanitarian actors uh, in these kind of conditions. Can you do your job there properly at the moment, given all of the restrictions? I mean, of course, that really depends on what job we're trying to do. I mean, uh, we have a field surgical team, a medical surgical team in a hospital in the south of Gaza, the European Gaza Hospital, who've been there for about three weeks. And when we hear the stories of, you know, what they're trying to do, the patients that they're trying to treat, I mean, of course, it, it's immense suffering they're seeing all around, and it's very, very difficult conditions. As you mentioned, there's often, there's no electricity, it's often dark, it's extremely overwhelming, medical supplies are not enough, you know, patients are continually coming with very devastating injuries, burns, things that need, you know, very specialist treatment. So it's incredibly difficult. And without electricity, many other essential services don't function. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned before, you know, that that impact has on people's lives. I mean, there's not enough water, people don't have enough food. You know, now the, it's starting to get colder, it's raining, you know, families are on the move, trying to find safety and, you know, the conditions everywhere are really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And we as humanitarian actors have to try and do our best to provide people with the assistance that they need. It's very, very difficult. The security conditions are hard for everyone. And equally, there's not enough aid getting in um, 
given the immense scale of the needs. I mean, the stories coming out are horrific. We've heard of mothers having C-sections with no anesthesia. We've heard of children having legs amputated, uh, again, with no uh, pain-killing substances at all. Uh, your president of the RSC uh, has recently met with the chief of Hamas in recent days, uh, reportedly to try and advance uh, progress on some of the humanitarian issues in the armed conflict between Hamas and Gaza. What can you tell us about the meeting that took place? I mean, as the International Red Cross, we always talk to all parties to the conflict in order to pass messages on the way that civilians are treated and all these humanitarian issues we're discussing. Now, we don't negotiate with parties. What we can do is if parties come to an agreement, we can help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't actually know about the details of these uh, meetings, however, as the ICSC, our job is always to do the best that we can for the people on the ground, the civilian mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. And we have a specific mandate under international law to do that. But also, like many actors, we're trying our best to deliver humanitarian assistance. And we spoke about the water, electricity, mm. you know, medical supplies. Uh, that can maybe mitigate the worst of this, you know, terrible suffering. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the safety on the ground for civilians. That is a, a big mission for you, of course. Now, Israel has for a long time accused Hamas of using civilians there as human shields. There's also been a lot of reports of Hamas reportedly using tunnels underground major hospitals there to carry out some of your work. Now, as I said, you've specifically worked with the Red Cross for more than 15 years. I know you're in regular, um, uh, in regular correspondence and communication wherever possible with the team there. What do you make of such claims? Have you or your team ever seen any evidence that these claims against Hamas are true? I mean, it's not our job to sort of, you know, verify or not these kind of claims. That's, a, you know, a different thing. For us, what's important is the needs of people. Sure, but suffering. obviously the team are there on the ground. Have they seen any evidence or, or they haven't seen any evidence of this so far? That I don't know. Mm -hmm. I feel, you know, what we're concerned with as well is indeed, what are the needs? What do people mm. need? What can we do to our best ability mm. to support them? And I think, again, in all of these contexts, these terrible situations, you know, there are of course are numbers, there are facts. Our job, however, is to focus on, on the needs of people. And, you know, I think we discussed that at the beginning. It's more than numbers. You know, mm. these are individual people suffering in terrible ways. Sure, but I mean, when we talk about some of that suffering, I think there's such big conflicting reports. Uh, on the one hand, we have the former Palestinian leader, uh, Mohammed Dalan. He recently came out and spoke to Time magazine, and he said it is utterly ridiculous to consider that Hamas is carrying out operations underground some of these big hospitals. On the flip side, we've then seen Israel's former prime minister, uh, Ehad Barak. He's come out and told CNN in recent days that Israel is confident that Hamas is occupying these tunnels underneath hospitals because Israel is the one who created these tunnels more than two decades ago. What do you make of those claims? If you were to, to look at which side uh, is likely to be telling the truth there, based on your and your team's expertise in the region, which side would you believe? I mean, we as an international humanitarian organisation, we don't take sides. Mm. And, you know, it's just, we don't, it's not our job to do that. It, those are political questions. And I'm sure there are people out there who have opinion or can answer them. Sure, you know, we but have surely hospitals and medical clinics, surely they should be off limits in any kind of conflict, wouldn't you agree? I mean, they should be off limits. Mm. What I'm saying, and I think that's important, mm. is that as humanitarian actors, if we are going to do our jobs to be able to give people aid on an impartial basis, you know, and as the ICSC, 
we operate along this principle of neutrality. We can't be seen to take sides. And that's really important for our humanitarian access. You know, there are plenty of actors who can have opinion. I'm sure there are lots of people who know far more than we do or I do on these specific questions. I think what's important for us as an organization is be able to do our job as a humanitarian mm -hmm. actor. And that definitely means we cannot take sides. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I, we all may have personal opinions, but also in work that's very important for the security mm -hmm. of our staff but also to enable us to do our jobs and it's the same in all the places I've worked sure if we are asked to leave the country for different reasons or you know in any situation then we won't be able to help people who need our help well let's talk about then the uh, the ability to help people in Gaza now recently there's been some opinion shared by several Israeli politicians they say that aid to Gaza should be contingent on the Red Cross being allowed to visit the 200 or so hostages that were taken by Hamas at the start of October. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think that cutting off urgent life-saving aid to the 2.2 million people who are trapped in Gaza, what, 14,000 or so have been killed, another 29,000 injured, do you think that is the right approach? I think, again, we, you know, all of these questions come back to the central point of how important it is to make sure that civilians are protected and can have access to humanitarian services and life-saving essential needs. So you would disagree then with what the politicians are saying? You would say that cutting off aid is not the right approach, even if the... I mean, I try to stay to away from, you know, what these kind of, again, quite political arguments where people take either very strong positions either side and keep a focus on, again, the little that we as humanitarian actors can do to help people. And, you know, given the devastation, the lack of water, electricity, food, um, hospital services, you know, we need to be able to focus on doing what we can, either to talk to the parties to the conflict whose ultimate responsibility it is to ensure that those services are provided or to bring aid in the best way we can to uh, people. I think the big challenge is that, you know, a lot of aid has been um, sent to help people. However, not much is actually getting in. You know, the number of trucks that has been able to, to access Gaza since the beginning of this terrible crisis is really limited. I mean, all aid is really needed and important. It's just not enough. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the numbers of trucks that were um, coming into Gaza before October the 7th, I think, I mean, I'm not good on numbers, but it was about 500 a day. Mm -hmm. Since this crisis, I think we've only seen a, you know, 1,200 or something trucks come in, that's a huge gap. Mm -hmm. So not only are the, you know, normal needs of people not being met, on top of this has been this devastating conflict where infrastructure has been destroyed, people have been killed, they're injured, they're fleeing, and there's not enough. And there's even less, you know, humanitarian aid for them. Mm -hmm. So to me, that for us as an organization is the really important focus. And we need to be able to as I say, do our job to the best of our ability and focus on that. And in a way, some of these other questions are not for us as a humanitarian organisation. And clearly growing, escalating violence we're seeing taking place not only in Gaza, but also the West Bank as well. I know the president of the Red Cross came out recently and said uh, we are seeing escalating violence in the West Bank at the moment. Do you feel that there's active engagement uh, focusing on protecting the rights and needs of people in the West Bank right now as well? Well, as you say, I mean, we're hugely concerned about this because, yes, there is an escalation of the situation and equally, you know, the same things apply. Civilians, you know, need to be protected and all these issues. So, yes, we are concerned. And I think that 
we all need to pay, yeah, make sure that we are able to do all the different things at the same time, despite, yeah, the mm -hmm. immense needs. Well, someone else who's been sharing his concern recently has been Elon Musk. He's been posting on X, formerly known as Twitter, at the start of this week. I saw he said he will, quote, donate revenue from advertising and subscriptions associated with the war in Gaza to hospitals in Israel and the Red Cross and Red Crescent in Gaza. I have to ask, has that donation been received yet? And is Israel really in need of, of aid or donations at the moment? I mean, I think given the you know devastating level of needs that we've been discussing, a lot of support is needed. I don't know about that specific case, but as yeah, ICSC, of course, you know, we have a humanitarian appeal, as do many organizations, and there are many different ways that people could support us. And I think the important thing is too, you know, we try to work on the idea of impartiality. Where are the needs the greatest? What can we do? And, you know, all kinds of people have needs in this particular situation. And so for us, again, great if others are, you know, finding ways to give support, money, or um, other things to mitigate the impact on people. I mean, certainly we're here in the in the UAE and the GCC countries have been very generous as well in sending aid, in um, funding humanitarian actors. And yes, absolutely, this is very important. I think the other piece is what we were saying before. There is also a need for more sustained humanitarian access mm -hmm. inside Gaza uh, because that is where people need the help. And clearly we're just not seeing enough of that at the moment. Now, I wanted to pick up on something uh, that you said to the media a few months ago in October. I saw you spoke to the National. You had some interesting comments about delivering humanitarian aid, saying that nowadays we must also take the environmental aspect into it, and saying that essentially our humanitarian assistance needs to keep up with climate change as well. But I have to ask, you know, when we look at a conflict like Gaza, when what is happening today, surely the big priority must be getting an aid in any way possible. You've mentioned today about the lack of access. You know, when we look at somewhere like China, the environmental damage of factories that we're seeing at the moment, surely that just doesn't compare when we look at being able to deliver urgent medical aid or, or milk to babies in Gaza, for example. I mean, you're right. I think in the heat of a, this such an enormous crisis and emergency, obviously, the priority is getting that life-saving aid. I just think at the same time, we should consider the impact of that aid over a longer time. And if we can offer a response that does the both, that's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy. However, I mean, even prior to this most recent crisis in Gaza, I mean, it was very difficult for people to sustain their livelihoods for various different reasons. So we were in the past working with communities in ways that we could help support their livelihoods with either tools or interventions that took into account the changing environmental context, because that puts people under enormous pressure as well. And I think, you know, after any conflict, there is has usually been an impact on either the environment or the essential infrastructure. And we spoke about that. If the electricity and all these services, I mean, the sewage system in Gaza is immensely damaged, wastewater, hospitals, that needs, you know, that has a price of being rebuilt, but equally it has an impact on people's abilities to cope. Coupled with the changing environment or the changes in climate, whether that makes it hotter, colder, I mean, it has an impact. So I think what we're trying to say is, yes, the priority of course is life-saving aid. If at the same time we can take into account people's needs over time, that's very important too. And in the past as humanitarian actors, sometimes we focused only on the immediate needs. Mm -hmm. 
and perhaps didn't always think about what was the response we were bringing and was that going to support people over time in some of these things. So, so being able to plan for the future is obviously yeah. key. And, and again, when I think we look at the impact of what's happening in Gaza, clearly this is going to be felt for many decades to come. Final question. I noticed that the uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, they have described ethnic cleansing as a purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. That is your specific definition. I have to ask, do you believe that what Israel is doing is ethnic cleansing? I mean, again, I couldn't answer that question. I think what's really important is that you know, in any conflict, that the rules of IHL are respected because then the impact on civilians will be less. Is that happening? Do you think the humanitarian international rules are being respected? Well, I think we see examples every day that look like in cases that, there, yeah, maybe there are challenges to that. But I think, again, as us, we're, we're what we say, we try to be the guardian of these rules, to talk to the parties of the conflict about them, to remind everyone of their obligations. We're not a guarantor. Has that an, made an impact yet when we see day by day that international humanitarian laws are being broken against civilians, against aid workers, uh, against hospital workers as well? Is that message getting through? I mean, it's a hard message, you know, it's a hard message. And I think, is it getting through? I mean, I guess if you're a civilian on the ground experiencing the impact of all of this, you probably don't think it's getting through. I think for us, you know, we can just do what we can. And it is very important to keep reminding parties of these obligations. It may seem a bit dry and not particularly, you know, directly able to impact people's terrible conditions. However, it is and it can make a difference. If critical infrastructure is not damaged unnecessarily, it has less impact on then people's ability to have water, electricity, all of these things. So, you know, again, I, you know, I'm not placed to sort of say that. However, I do think even if that seems really difficult, it can make a difference. No, I think those conversations have huge significance in terms of what we are seeing. And we do hope that the conflict, uh, we, we, that we will see these international humanitarian laws are respected one way or another before too many more lives are lost. Yeah. Claire, thank you very much for joining us today. Certainly no easy answers, particularly no. when you look at the rising number of death tolls and civilians we are seeing every day. But we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you for you. having me.